Romans 3, 9 through 18. No one is righteous. There we go. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Total depravity. The uh, basic, I guess, uh, the, the simplest way to put it is that man in his natural fallen state is incapable and unwilling for the things of God, any spiritual good. So that means that left to ourselves, we would not choose uh, salvation at all. And ultimately, that's what TULIP is kind of pointing towards. That's what we're talking about here is uh, doctrines around salvation. So um, the the reasons I would say that I hold to it, uh, going back to the last episode, it feels like forever now, um, it was uh, Ravi Zacharias, as I said, one of my favorite uh, non-Calvinists. He explains, uh, I think, really well that uh, in order to take an argument, you've got to have three pieces. You've got to have logical consistency. You've got to have evidential adequacy and then existential relevance. So it's got to make sense uh, of the data. It's got to be logical. There has to be data to support it. That's where the evidence comes in. And then it has to mean something in experience. And taking the second one first, I believe in total depravity, just like I do with the rest of the tulip doctrine, as you like to call it, uh, because I think the evidence is pretty strong, scripturally speaking. And we can get into uh, some Bible passages as we go. Um, I think... Total depravity makes sense from a logical perspective uh, as far as understanding how mankind works with God and in often cases against God uh, scripturally uh, again. Uh, but then also in, in my own experience, um, looking at the world, looking at uh, history and, and what have you, I think all of those three factors come together. So. I'll stop the uh, the intro there because I really didn't have much else uh, to say prepared, and we'll just kind of bounce around, and uh, you can you can press me on it if you want to, or you can just say you know what you're right, I believe you. Yeah, you're completely wrong, especially from a logical and experiential perspective. So let's talk about that evidence. Uh, okay. Let's let's use the typical proof text, and I'm going to jump around. I don't have them in any specific order. Okay. Genesis 6, uh, the parallel here is uh, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man. This was in Noah's time. Uh, right. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So I'm not going to do this with every proof text verse, but this one the context is the uh, the sons of God and the daughters of man. Angels have had physical relations. I don't know if there's kids listening, so I'm not going to be too explicit here. Have had physical relations with humans and pretty much populated the whole earth with Nephilim and have corrupted the thoughts of man. If this was 100% of all people, uh, why did God spare Noah and his sons and his wives? 
His wives don't seem to have the same uh, contextual evidence for their obedience that Noah does. And it, the obedience of his sons is only hinted at in they obey their father and help him build the ark over 100 years. But this one is a proof text falls short for me in as much as the context of the verse mm-hmm. doesn't make it totally depraved of every human being. But the the corruption of the human, I guess you'd say condition from what God planned because of uh, angels having offspring with humans. Sure. Uh, moving on to the next one. And again, I'm not going to evaluate. Oh, all you're going to shotgun it. OK, yeah, we're going to gish gallop uh, through tulip. Uh, just the T total depravity. OK, uh, OK. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. Uh, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So this this one is going to be core to where I go with my opposition to total depravity. Uh, okay. And this one in the New Testament reference to Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 65, 12, I will destine you for the sword. All of you will fall in the slaughter. I called for I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Romans three twenty three for all oh, have uh, sinned. Six, you said. Or six, yes, sixty five twelve. Okay. Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That one is going to frame my position on Isaiah passages. Yeah, you got to uh, go back a little bit in Romans three, but okay. Yeah, but that that is the core of that passage, right? Okay. Uh, uh, Romans eight, and and I'm just using the ones that are used by Calvinists as the quote unquote proof text to show total depravity. All right, we're not okay. going to get we're not going to have a theological hours long theological session describing the context for every single one of these passages. There's like fifteen. Of them. Uh, Romans eight seven, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Indeed, it cannot. Does not prove total depravity, just like okay. the others. Uh, to the pure, tit- sorry, it's Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Jeremiah 13.23. Again, skipping back and forth all through Old and New Testament, not in any kind of order. Uh, can Ethiopia, well, this is NIV version. Let me pull up ESV. It's a little more modern day, uh, the can Alex- standard version. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I know that argument for any non-Calvinist listening, uh, we use the ESV at church. So contextually it's consistent for me when reading the Bible, cause we see it so much. Uh, if you prefer another version, feel free to go get it. Uh, some of these are in NIV cause that's just how they pulled up first. Uh, Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do, uh, can you do good? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Again, uh, contextually, uh, Jeremiah 13, not 13, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? This one is absolutely core to my uh, position against Tulip. Romans 5.12, death through Adam, 
life through Christ. Uh, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And it doesn't, uh, verse 12 doesn't go into the life through Christ part, but the, the Calvinists know how that continues. Uh, those who don't, Calvinists. those who don't, uh, know the context of that for total depravity can look up what it says about Christ after that. Uh, Romans 5, 14 to 19, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a commandment, as did Adam. Uh, who is a pattern of the one to come, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that of uh, death reigned through that one man, how much more do those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of the righteousness reign in the life reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, Amen. consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as the, as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be righteous. Ephesians 2, 1 through uh, 5, and I'm sure you're going to reference that one in your opposition to my counter, so I'm going to pull that one out. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Uh, as yes. for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Uh, notice the disobedience there. Mm -hmm. All of us also live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. By uh, what? By nature, which. By nature. Uh, okay. Just, just so sure. I love that you called that out because. Paul's use of nature is not by birth or by creation. Um, I love that. So we're coming back to that one, too. Uh, <laughs> by nature, deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Awesome. That one's coming out, too. Yep. Uh, Mark seven twenty one through 23, for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil comes, evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, law, lewdness, evils, envy, not evil, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Romans 3, 9 through 18, no one is righteous. There we go. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have al already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And um, since you're so approving of that one, I'm sure you're going to use that in your argument. So that one's coming out too. Uh, Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if they are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Hey, that sounds uh, familiar. I know, right? It's almost like Paul is quoting all of Old Testament scripture, positioning his non-total depraved argument that all do sin and separate themselves from God. Uh, <laughs> if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right. So first thing before we actually get into discussing and debating whether those actually mean total depravity, they don't. Uh, I want you to answer uh a few questions okay so what do calvinists and what do you specifically think non-calvinists believe about the guilt of mankind like what what how would you position my argument um that's that's a really good question from my perspective non-calvinists in general um are pretty diverse in their understanding and explanation of uh, man's guilt of man's transgression, how sin works uh, with respect to redemption. So, I mean, you, you've got views anywhere from kind of a soft Calvinist position where they wouldn't say they're Calvinist, but maybe they're two, three pointers, that kind of thing, all the way to complete open theist uh, where uh, to, to the level where, God has no idea what's going to happen next. Um, and, and I would say those, they're so far away from orthodoxy that, that uh, they're not really in the house, well, so let's, to speak. I would agree they're not in the house, but let's let's be not genuine. I, don't, I can't think of the word I'm looking for here. Uh, let's be accurate to their beliefs. They think so uh, logically and Keep keep where you are in mind. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go too deep on this rabbit hole and get you off subject with answering the question. Uh, the open theists agree that God is truly omniscient up to the current moment in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had all real knowledge, all possible knowledge prior to creation, and he has all possible knowledge up to the current point. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they fail is in the belief that the future has not been written and God does not know it as set events. Uh, He chooses not to know it as set events for, I've never really figured out why they think he chooses not to know it, how that plays into their argument. I, I, that part of it, I can't rationalize, but well, well, real quick on that, that sounds uh, less like open theism and more like Molinism which would say that God has this middle knowledge, uh, knowledge of counterfactuals, the, the hypotheticals. Okay, well, there may be camps in the open theists who believe God does not actually know the future, but the only ones I've ever seen uh, describe themselves as open theists does also describe that they believe God is omniscient up to the current moment. Like He knows sure. all possible futures, but he doesn't know what's going to happen until it does actually happen. It's not actualized fact to him that's the only thing i've ever heard described it's totally possible there are major schools of thought in that camp that would disagree with that wholeheartedly and that may be a minority 
belief in that camp, but that's the only one I've ever seen described. So on that, from what you're saying, God doesn't know the future. Okay, if that's if that's the case, that's actually more logically consistent. But for me, the problem with open theists that I've had interactions with is that they believe God is omniscient up to the current moment and knows all possibilities for future events, but doesn't know actualized fact because it hasn't happened yet. And he hides that from himself. The logical inconsistency with that for me is if God exists linearly, which I don't believe he does, uh, he right. would have to for their position to uh, be factual. If God exists linearly, knowing literally everything possible and having the intellectual capacity to you know know all math, know all science, know all uh, philosophy, know all history up to this point, if he knew all facts mathematically, possibilities wouldn't be possibilities to him. It, it would. Right. It would be calculable to absolute certainty. The reason we have statistics and possibilities and uh, potentialities is we don't have all facts. There's a scientist out there who theorizes that time is an illusion. Like all moments in existence exist concurrently and we just experience it as time because that's how we framed it and we don't know all knowledge to be able to see it all as just a pile of moments that exist concurrently. Um, it's a theory. It's not something really provable with the kind of science, technology, and uh, knowledge that we have today. But the math behind it is not nonsensical. It, it actually has validity behind it. So their, their whole idealization is disproven with known facts. <laughs> so anyway, uh, continue on. So beyond the open theists, uh, you know, what you, your typical non-Calvinist but mainstream Protestant Christian, what would you say our position is in opposition to, to the, the T in total depravity uh, in Tulip? Um Honestly, I think the mainstream non-Calvinist view isn't very well fleshed out, at least in my experience. Really? Yeah. Uh, um, not not just with Tulip, but I, th I think on the whole, I mean, just look at classes that, that we've done at church, uh, look at uh, conversations that we've seen publicly. It's, it's not as though the mainstream non-Calvinist has understood Calvinism and rejected it, or even sometimes heard of the five points of Calvinism and rejected them, but rather they haven't really focused on that particular aspect of a systematic theology. I think that's probably the the, the most general uh, generalized view. Uh, now, certainly mm. there, there okay. are many of us, uh, both Calvinist and non-Calvinist, who have focused on this question, um, which as you pointed out in uh, Facebook groups, I, I think when it comes to total depravity, you've got um, two main camps that I think people fall into. Um, and, and I'll be honest, in the conversations we've had, I'm not sure exactly where you would fall in this. So I'll put out the two most common that I've experienced, and you can tell me if you fall into to either one or my hunch is that you'll say a third bucket that I haven't considered. Um, one is that Adam's fall had no impact on his progeny. And uh, the 
similar verses that you've pulled out that talk of man turning away, that each individual sins, that kind of thing, that we all have our our own independent fall uh, to, to some degree. The other would be more of a, a Wesleyan view, uh, John Wesley, the, the Methodist guy, not, you know, me. Uh, <laughs> they would uh, they would say that Adam's fall did impact his progeny and that there's a provenient grace that kind of ransoms us from total depravity to kind of a neutral state. And at that point, we have a will that's not bound to sin that we can use to choose salvation. Okay. Um, before I really answer, uh, and you were you were correct, uh, I don't really fall into either one of those camps. Uh, so I, I do lean closer to the first one, but the way it's typically described, I disagree with in as much as obviously we did have a change uh, from the garden, you know, yeah. Adam and Eve. You're, you're not were, a full on Pelagian. No. And the, the arguments, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, Calvinists really need to stop using that argument because the only knowledge we have of Pelag- uh, Pelag- Pelagius's position, I think I pronounced his name right, uh, is what, and I've heard his name, uh, Say it. Uh, pronounced differently recently than I uh, thought it was pronounced. Augustine. Uh, I've heard people say it in Augustine. Yeah. Uh, Augustine. Augustine. Yeah. Augustine. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Augustine, however you pronounce his name, Augustine argued after his death. So uh, most of his documents, most of his writings were destroyed. And every time he had to defend himself in front of a council when he was living, he was deemed not a heretic. So we don't really know definitively what he wrote and what he believed other than what Augustine says about what he believed. So Calvinists need to stop using that straw man because based on what is described about him, even Calvinists are semi-Pelagians. Okay. So, wow. okay. uh, uh, the, the, the whole, the whole ad hom straw man argument on both sides just needs to stop. You need to know what the other side believes and stop trying to label it. Okay. I okay. get that Calvinists like being tied to a systematic. Great. You do you boo. Uh, but tying everyone else to a systematic is frustrating because if we don't hold to what you understand of that systematic, you are one straw manning our argument two creating confirmation bias for your opinion and not listening to what we're saying. So well, this one is not quick, a you, this is aimed yeah, at the yeah. audience who's listening. One, Go ahead. one quick interjection I'd like to, to ask. Do you, do you think it's, understand or at least more understandable given what you've said about pushing back against a systematic that if you don't provide one either you or anybody else who who would disagree with calvinism if you don't provide a replacement systematic can you see how it would be difficult to to really get a good understanding of the view i can see how it would be difficult to get a good understanding of the view i don't see where Calvinists in particular and Lutherans and Arminians are guilty of this as well, 
I don't see where Calvinists come off out of hand rejecting objections to points that they're systematic that are core to the whole systematic being per- true. Like our conversation, and we're skipping three weeks ahead, our conversation, uh, well, no, it, it applies to total depravity. Uh, our conversation in our first makeup uh, lunch meeting at uh, Cracker Barrel oh, wow, four and a half yeah. years ago, my, my arguments, my counter argument about Jesus and that the Calvinist position really doesn't have even implicit, much less explicit proof that Jesus was exempt from the total depravity simply because God was his father instead of Joseph being his father. Really just without any other argument destroys the the biblical factuality of total depravity in my mind. And we'll get into that later in this session. I don't want to okay. uh, jump too much into that right now because I still want to frame this back and forth a little better. So your position is that man has not even a desire for good things. Uh, absent the grace of God, uh, regenerating grace of God, yes. Okay. So when a non-believer gives up his life for his fellow man, like when a soldier dives on a grenade to save his squad mates, knowing he's going to die, non-believer, no chance of him going to heaven just because of that one act, because, you know, acts do not save a person only. Right. Only faith through grace does. How can you position that as not a selfless act of and I'm not saying the act makes the man righteous. I'm saying the act is righteousness, right? So I differentiate, and we'll get more into this as I explain my position, but I can differentiate a righteous act from something that makes a person righteous, right? The 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 no one is good, no one does good in the eyes of God means nothing, no act of a person can save that person, can redeem that person. It doesn't mean no one can do a righteous act. So Christ himself said, the, oh gosh, what I can't remember. I should have pulled up that quote. It says, the greatest love for a man is laying down your life. I, and I'm horribly paraphrasing that because I didn't pull Greater up love have, have no Greater man love than, hath no yeah. man than to give his life, right? So Shout out to the King James Version there. Yeah. Um, so if... If a non-believer is capable of laying down his life selflessly without any thought, and the, the typical rebuttal I see from Calvinists, I don't know if yours would be this, the typical rebuttal I see from Calvinists is that, well, it's a selfish act. It, in some way, he felt like he was going to get something out of that. How can someone no, giving up that. his life be a, be a selfish act, like feeling like he's going to get something rewarding out of that? That is the ultimate selfless act to give up your life for another. And we see non-believers do it throughout history. So mm-hmm. positioning like that gives me the thought that no one is righteous is that no the bible also says no act of man can earn salvation right mm-hmm. so it is by grace through faith period nothing we do earns us salvation but Correct. it doesn't mean man is totally depraved incapable of truly righteous thought truly righteous position it just means that that righteous act and righteous position is incapable of countering the the earning of damnation by even a single act of sin. 
Right? Man sins once in his life, he's going to hell. He's not perfect. The 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 good that Paul speaks of in quotes from the Old Testament is consistently 100% of the time pursuing God in perfect righteousness. God demands perfection and we are incapable of perfection. So anything we do is but rags in light of the fact we have already earned damnation by the act of sin. Okay. And so that, that is the surface level response I would have there jumping into your two camps position. Wait, I don't get to answer the question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, if, if you just want to ask the question and move on, that's fine. I just I want to make sure we're we're on the same page here before we, thought, before we do. I anything. thought I was speaking rhetorically. If you had, if you thought I asked a question that needs response, feel free. No, <clears throat> your your scenario about the the unbelieving uh, man jumping on a grenade. Okay. Right. I wouldn't say that the act itself was selfish. Um, I think in w- through the lens of of total depravity, if you will. Um, we understand that total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. Uh, we're not all as evil as we could be. We're not a bunch of Hitlers and Stalins running around. Uh, there is still, um, as the canons of Dort would say, there remain in man since the fall, the glimmerings of natural light. So there is still a knowledge of God, uh, a knowledge of good and evil, right? Romans one, God has, uh, this natural revelation. So there is still an understanding of it. However, uh, as you pointed out, outward behavior doesn't point to inward righteousness. And I think that's the distinction. We can do things that are outwardly good, uh, even without faith. Right? So how does, does, how does that lead to man being incapable of doing good? How does, that, how does that lead to the argument that man does not do faith? It, it doesn't lead to that argument. That argument leads to that application, right? A total depravity, uh, or, or rather the fall, is the foundation on which an unbeliever can do something uh, like that, but it not be considered righteous, right? It's through the fall, our fallen nature. Okay, but the Bible also, uh, in the case of Abraham, in the case mm-hmm. of several New Testament persons, the Bible also explicitly says faith is not righteous it is counted as righteousness by god so the the framing of faith does not make it something that is righteous earning salvation it is counted by god as righteousness because he chooses to so how does total depravity lead to the argument that faith is a gift from god not something man is not capable of or willing to do so if a, if a man okay. is capable yeah, of yeah. the ultimate example of love, laying down his life for another, how does what you've just said lead to the argument that man cannot have faith? It has to be a gift from God. Well, I think for one, we see scripturally, and this is where I go back to the scriptural evidence, uh, that faith is a gift. Okay, show me that evidence. Uh, Ephesians 2 uh, says that... Uh, is by faith, by grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest uh, any man may boast. Okay, so Paul it is, it in is Romans, the gift of God. So Paul, no Paul in Romans states that faith is not a work of man; it is not a work of the law. So, oh, Paul yeah, we agree on that. Absurdly, repeatedly, and explicitly, in extreme detail, identifies that faith is not a work. 
Okay. Right. So but he also the, identifies in Romans that what is not done of faith is sin. So even outward behavior that faith. is not done of faith doesn't count toward any righteousness. Okay. We're, it's not we're, counted we're as ag- righteousness in that, in that right, We're We're in agreement that anything a person does external of faith in God is not counted as righteousness in the eyes of God, right? A man right. can have the ultimate loving uh, example of love, lay down his life for another, have no faith in his heart, and it not be counted as righteous, right? Yep. Uh, w- w- we're not arguing that. What I'm getting at is that the the argument from Calvinists that faith is necessarily a gift from God because faith leads to salvation by grace it must be a gift from God because otherwise it would be a work of man. That that doesn't follow logically. No, no, I, I agree that that saying that it's a gift so that it can't be a work to fit into an argument may may be illogical. But let me let me read the the specific verse again. I, I didn't recite it from memory very well. Ephesians two uh, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So we agree that faith is not a work, but here it is explicit in the text. No, no, no. What does that text say? Read it again. Read it again. For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Mm -hmm. Grace saves us. Okay. Grace Mm -hmm. is what saves us. Not faith. Grace saves us through the pathway of faith. Okay. We could have right. faith all day long, but without God giving us the gift of grace, choosing to save us through that tunnel so, so, of faith. So what is the gift itself? The gift is the salvation through grace. God's grace, undeserving. No matter how much we have faith, we are still undeserving of but that it's grace. It's by grace, but it's through faith. That's that's what right. we might call right. the Sorry. instrumental cause. Okay. I'm mixing up my... Not interlocutors. Uh... I'm not an English major, so I forget which which description fits that. So you're just mixing up the scripture. It's okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, not the first time. Grace is what saves us, right? God gives us the gift of grace. Nothing we do earns that. He right. has chosen the pathway of faith to give us grace. And the argument of Calvinists is that the faith is the gift, is the subject uh, of of that passage. But the grace is the subject, okay? By grace, you just as easily say both, and, and that's also a, an argument I hear often. But that that's that doesn't follow the language, the language structure, okay? So the language structure okay. there has an object. It mm-hmm. has, and again, I can't describe this as much as, as even remotely as well as a uh, literature expert. Uh, because I don't even remember the terms, the literature terms that separate parts of speech. Um, but th- the focus, the object of that sentence is grace. Okay, the gift of God by grace. We we have no argument there. Mm-hmm. Nothing we do can earn salvation. Faith alone cannot give us salvation because God has to apply grace that we do not deserve under any reasoning of man. The, the pathway, it is not, and we're skipping into week two, it is not unconditional. It is conditional on the faith of man. Mm-hmm. So by grace, through faith. And the argument from Calvinists is that both are gifted to man. 
Grace is gifted. I, we agree there. Faith is gifted, so that grace saves us. Um, but th- that's not what the language is saying there. It has been re-read by the Calvinist cap to fit within the systematic. And this is one reason I oppose systematics in general is because everything is viewed within the lens of that systematic. So back to your point, if you, and I'm squirreling bad, back to your point earlier, this, this is why I don't hold to a systematic to oppose Calvinism because people will focus on the problems with that systematic instead of the argument being had, right? So back to the point, the Ephesians 2, 8 and on through that section, we wholly agree that it is a gift from God. But what is the gift of God being talked about there? Is it grace and faith? No, it is grace, which we do not deserve under any justification of man, even with us having faith, right? If we had faith without God having preordained before time began how he would save us from our fall, right? Mm -hmm. Our faith would be meaningless. Our faith does not save us. Our faith is worthless without the sacrifice of God choosing to give us grace, undeserving, because we could live the absolute perfect life, okay? Let's Mm -hmm. say Job may have sinned once in his life. It's just not written in Scripture. The assumption is he's not perfect because no man since Adam before the fall has been perfect, right? Uh, Except Jesus. (laughs) Know what I mean, home slice. Uh, So... Let's take Job as an example. Okay. All right. Job was obviously a righteous man, lived absolutely unquestionably righteous life. Even he sinned at one point in time because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. That one sin without the grace of God counters an entire lifetime of absolute righteousness. Right. Right. So, that that is the focus here right what is the cause of our damnation what is the cause of our salvation and calvinists in my opinion reading without presuppositions the scripture conflate grace with faith okay uh and when when the argument against the calvinist position is that faith is the responsibility of man, and you've already agreed this is a bad argument. The argument I always get is that, well, if faith is a responsibility of man, that makes it a work. Well, no, faith faith is apart from the law. Faith is apart from righteous acts. It is a prerequisite of God that man have faith before God chooses the, the grace, to, to apply the grace. It is not a requirement that God give the faith in order to uh, regenerate a person and apply the grace. It is that grace is what saves us. And apart from grace, even faith is worthless. Okay. Grace through faith is what saves us. That's what Ephesians 2 8 is saying. And you, you could even argue that the, fa- the faith can be considered a gift in as much as the faith would be meaningless without God applying the gift of grace but it's not meaning what Calvinists position it as, right? God is not literally giving us the faith that we wouldn't have if he didn't cause it in us. Uh, now, I know well, I that know there are... I don't know about all that, but okay. Well, Rebut, go ahead. Tell well, me how I'm wrong. 
Well, this this is uh, when it gets into kind of the applications uh, throughout the, the rest of Tulip. But uh, I, I guess one thing I'd want to say, I find it interesting that part of your argument is that Calvinists conflate grace and faith when there's a pretty robust history, in, including recently uh, in the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul, of distinguishing grace and faith. And if you consider that a distinction without a difference, and, and you want to say I that's do. conflating, okay. Um, but at least there's an active attempt to recognize grace as distinct from faith. Whether so that my, fails my is, position, is... Yeah, so my position there that they're conflating is that every proof text they use to show faith is a gift from God mm-hmm. is talking about the gift of salvation, right? The gift of salvation through grace. Right. Um, and they're conflating within that proof text, not the idea of faith and the idea of grace, the application of that text to what is the gift to discredit an opposing argument by intentionally applying their uh, systematic in order to reposition what the passage is saying. So uh, okay. it, it's so, not so conflation let's, let's of the ideas, now. it's conflation within the proof text, right? So, so let me let me bring in a scriptural reference that you didn't mention that I think might help kind of get to a, a, a better spot here. Okay. Uh, John 6, which <clears throat> is a notorious uh, proof text for, for Calvinists, uh, I'd go to verse 44. Jesus says this, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, it's a simple verse. Mm-hmm. But what he what he's saying there, what my contention is, is that Jesus is saying that no man has the ability to come unless he is drawn. Mm-hmm. And that drawing is effective for ultimate salvation. That's what we see in the last uh, clause there. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's a that's a promise that all who are drawn uh, are raised up on the last day. All who come are raised up on the last day. Okay, um, all who all who come, not right. all who are drawn, all who come. Okay, so well, I would not, not I would not w- disagree with that. With that. I mean, we, we go back a few verses. I think it's uh, verse thirty-seven. All the Father gives to me will come to me. So when you're talking about that distinction, he's already said before, all that are given will come. Now that gets into uh, no, 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 election. No, no, no. So yeah, right. So we're we're get, we're jumping ahead in the tulip doctrine. So yeah. the. And I wanted to save this for election, but since you brought it up, I'm gonna I'm gonna apply it here because well, it seems well, before to apply we do, here. B- before we do, I, I want to focus specifically on how Jesus says, "No man can come to me unless he is drawn, unless the Father okay. draws." But and and but that's that's where we are you, right before now. Before you describe your position, a, okay. I, I still have no argument against that, right? Okay, uh, good. We we nothing we do would bring us to Jesus and bringing us to Jesus is the saving act, right? Jesus is talking about salvation of the faithful. Okay. He's not talking about bringing us to hear him. He's talking about bringing us to his flock. Okay. To salvation. Right. Not bringing us to hearing or bringing us to faith, bringing us to salvation. Okay. So go on. Sorry. Well, I I think that's, that's really where it is, is that in our natural state, Jesus is saying, no man can come to me 
unless it is drawn. And what you were referring to earlier is this idea of a, uh, the necessity of a gift. Uh, and you, you want to phrase it as, or you want to position it as grace is the gift rather than faith. And where Jesus says here, that drawing that's done, um, I would turn the question on you and ask, do you think that Jesus is saying there uh, that that drawing is simply the grace or is that the faith? That, as Paul says later, when Abraham had the faith, it was counted to him as righteous. Righteousness. So where do, where do you get that the drawing is the faith? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you if when you see that verse, when, when you see Jesus say, no man can come to me unless he is drawn by the uh, Father. Well, no, I would just counter that with uh, the times in the New Testament and the Old Testament where if God had given someone the opportunity— that he gives someone else or giving them clear interpretation instead of parables, they would have believed how could someone willfully believe if God has to give them the belief, right? So again, it's conflation to me. I, I don't see the logical connection between God drawing someone having interaction with someone to, you know, beg them to repent, demand they repent in some cases. And mm -hmm. the, the conclusion that those who do must have been given it as a gift. I, I don't see that in scripture or logically in the argument. Okay. Well, I tried, but I, I think this, this highlights kind of the position of total depravity in our natural state. So let, let's we, let's jump we, to my rebuttal there, right? Okay. Uh, when Jesus is talking in parables, uh, the a, a typical Calvinist argument there is that, well, the people who are in his flock understand, and mm -hmm. he's hiding the truth from these other people because he's not giving them understanding. But in several of those instances, actually all but maybe one of them. Uh, it explicitly shows that his believers didn't understand the parables. He had to go and explain it directly to them later. Right. So uh, if, if the argument is that they only believe because he gives them belief, then why don't why don't his followers, the people who do believe, understand what's being said? He has to then go back and tell them. My position is what Paul says in Romans. He's using that to serve a purpose, and this is said in Deuteronomy as well. Uh, he's making the Jews jealous by giving something to the Gentiles that was meant for the Jews, but the Jews rejected. So he's um, judiciously hardening an already hardened heart to hide the truth from them that they would otherwise accept on their own if he said it clearly. Not that he would have to give them understanding of. They would accept if he spoke clearly to reach the goal of Scripture, the goal of his entire creation goal. I, I wanted to use a different word, but, you know, whatever. Uh, so we'll stop it right there. That's going to conclude part one of our two-part conversation on total depravity. Thanks for tuning in. 
And uh, as always, thanks for listening. I'm Wes. He's Alex. We'll see you next time.